You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security podcast. I am Nicole, one of your moderators and a member of the committee staff. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys here moderating as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And I'm Yvette, another one of your moderators. This podcast will discuss national security issues in the news and provide critical baseline information about the issues for new lawyers and lawyers that have been practicing national security law for years. And I'm Elisa, another one of your moderators. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law. Join us at one of our monthly speaker programs or at our annual conference in November to hear more about what's happening today and what will happen tomorrow on these issues. We will deliver sober, well-reflected, unbiased updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law. But never boring unless you have a super low, unreasonable boredom threshold. I've met people like this, lacking in curiosity. They don't want to listen to substantive podcasts, but you wouldn't want to linger over that Sumatran pour-over with them. Know what I mean? Yep, I've met those people too. I avoid them at parties. During our podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org forward slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. In addition, you can find links to other books, learned treatises, and academic articles on today's topics on our website. At the end of this podcast, please drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org or on Twitter at ABANATSEC. We welcome your feedback. Today, we'll continue our series on private national security law. We are really excited to welcome to the podcast Alexandra Mize, who goes by Xander. Hi, it's great to be here. So, in less than a decade since you graduated from Georgetown University Law Center, you've managed to traverse the globe serving on international commissions and tackling one of the most interconnected global national security issues. But before we get into that, let me add a little background. You studied at Georgetown School of Foreign Service, then Religion and Islamic Studies at Dartmouth College, and then you were a Fulbright Fellow in Albania. After working in international political development, you studied Arabic at Middlebury College, all before going to law school. That is an amazing foundation for the study of law. You also did your law degree in Georgetown in conjunction with a Master of Public Administration from Columbia School of International and Public Affairs. You recently moved from the International Litigation and Arbitration and Corporate Social Responsibility Practices at Foley Hoke to join the firm Mitchell, Silverberg, and Nupp as enough counsel in its new international disputes practice. Also, in your spare time, you're <laughs> serving as an adjunct professor at Georgetown Law, teaching international human rights law, and you are a fellow at the Columbia Center on Sustainable Investment. So, when do you sleep? I don't know, but if you can find Hermione's time turner, I really want one. <laughs> so, our series is about private national security law and how lawyers in the private sector work on national security issues. Some of this work is obvious. But some work that impacts national security may be less obvious. You have a broad portfolio, much of which falls into the category of less obvious private national security work. I'd love to start by talking about your work on international tribunals. Now, to our listeners, international tribunals may not seem to be bodies that have an impact on the national security of the United States, but they do. Can you start by giving us a brief history of these tribunals to start? 
Sure. So when you say tribunals, you're thinking about international criminal tribunals, and they address some of the most serious crimes that the the planet has seen. Um, and this, uh, shall we say, you know, movement of these tribunals started with after World War II, the idea that we wanted to try and and have some accountability for some of these incredibly egregious and serious crimes that we saw, the Holocaust and the genocide that it was, was included in that. And so we had the Nuremberg uh, tribunals and the Tokyo tribunals set up to try and um, bring those who committed the most serious of those crimes to justice. And while people argue that there were some flaws with that, we've carried that forward for the next few decades. And so when we see that in um, the 1990s, when they, we had uh, the genocide going on in Bosnia, we had a genocide going on in Rwanda, people looked back and said, what were those standards that we had? What happened in World War II? And how did we get from there to here? And what did we do wrong that we couldn't uh, have a place for accountability for this? So there was an idea to create tribunals uh, to address those crimes. And the UN and the Security Council, um, in conjunction with their authority under the UN Charter, did create the International Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, ICTY. And we also have the ICTR, which is the Tribunal for Rwanda. Um, and those, uh, you know, that's a topic for perhaps a whole other podcast as to <laughs> the meat and guts of those tribunals, but they certainly have tried dozens and dozens of individuals in a, 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 with ob- objective um, investigations and reporting and uh, standards of trial that comport with international due process with regards to some of these serious crimes. Then you fast forward a bit to 2000 when we have the development of the International Criminal Court. And with the drafting of the Rome Statute for that court, the idea was that this was going to put into words what was uh, customary thinking about these international law crimes. Now, why do we care about any of this with national security law, which was your original question, and I do remember it, um, but it's that by, you know, from many levels. It sets certain standards that then we know our military operators know are the standards when they engage in conflicts abroad. This is a direct in, uh, relationship to international humanitarian law, how we interpret it in the United States, but also how our, our friends and our not-so-friends uh, interpret those laws in other countries. In addition, um, it creates uh, stability by having people know that there are certain standards out there, right? So there are certain norms that we shouldn't cross. And when you have places for accountability and the fear that if you do something that you could be brought to The Hague, uh, which now, you know, incites fear in people, why does that? Oh, because, you know, that's when you do something very, very bad, um, which we've agreed on, you know, through these standards. So that's just some of the ways in which it um, applies to national security. There's, of course, a huge diplomatic component to this and international relations, how we relate with other countries, whether we participate in these tribunals, how other countries participate in these tribunals and investigations. And the mechanisms that these tribunals have given us to look into these issues absolutely relates on many levels. And you actually served on a couple of these courts, the Extraordinary Chambers and the Courts of Cambodia, uh, which was designed to handle the crimes committed by the Khmer Rouge in the 1970s, and the Ad Hoc Court for East Timor following attacks on civilians from the late 1970s to the late 1990s. So could you tell us a little bit about what it's like to work in these, in these international courts? 
Sure. So um, with the the ECCC or UNICRIT, which is the Extraordinary Chambers of the Courts of Cambodia and the United Nations uh, Mission and Assistance of the Khmer Rouge Tribunals, huge mouthfuls. <laughs> yeah, lots yeah. Of, I, I like the abbreviations. <laughs> Thank you. Give her a beer. Um, <laughs> Too yes. much to say. If yeah. this is, I mean, what would be a NATSEC podcast without a couple of uh, <laughs> abbreviations, right? <laughs> but um, but that tribunal, I worked for something called the pretrial chamber, and it, this is a judicial chamber within the mechanism that is there and it reviews uh, the best way to describe it is sort of interlocutory appeals right so that's not the supreme court chamber that's looking at final verdicts but this is a chamber that's looking at questions of procedure that come up or other sorts of of questions of law that arise and need to be addressed by um, uh, judges but not necessarily the direct trial judges taking place um, with in East Timor, um, I was but a law student, uh, and um, I worked for um, the Serious Crimes Unit of that tribunal. Serious Crimes Unit addresses, quote, serious crimes. What is that? These are crimes like murder and other, you know, they may not be war crimes per se, but very serious crimes that were committed in the course of a, of a conflict. And I worked for the prosecution division there. Well, that's great. So what I'd like to shift to now is what you're doing advising private companies who do business in foreign countries. Mm -hmm. Um, How is that part of your portfolio related to national security? So a lot of what I do has to do with preventing and resolving natural resource disputes. And that takes many forms. Some of it takes the form of working on investment disputes that relate to massive infrastructure projects, um, large natural resource development projects, mining, mining of sometimes you know minerals that are in great demand. Sometimes it involves um, oil and gas resources, things like this. But also, you know, working with um, countries on uh, certain international law issues related to boundaries and things like that, which affects ability of, uh, to access natural resources depending on where you draw those boundaries. But another piece of what I do on the prevention side. Um, So, you know, there may be disputes that arise along the way about these kinds of projects and cases, but um, on a prevention side, we work with companies and countries and things like that to talk about what are some good human rights practices that you can implement so that a dispute doesn't arise. Again, how does this relate to national security? Well, first of all, of course, natural resources are directly related to our national security. We need oil and gas and certain minerals for our operations, for the commercial sector, and for our public sector and our military. Um, but also, the relations between states can be affected by whether you have access to those resources. Now, sometimes when you have one of these really big projects, you need security for that project. So on a very practical level, you also have a situation where major companies are often dealing with foreign militaries or militia or security operators who may be part of the public sector there or they're hiring private security contractors. And so there is this this mesh and web between security forces and operators and very large infrastructure projects. And how do you deal with that? How do you handle it? Brings up a lot of issues in the security realm. May I just follow up with you really quickly? I want to bring this into some sort of concrete terms for the listeners really quickly. Mm -hmm. If I'm a big company and I know uh, I want to build a pipeline somewhere in Nigeria, for example, Mm -hmm. I may need to hire some people to protect the workers that are going to set that up. And obviously that's a flashpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, Would that be a situation in which, um, you know, a lawyer could render advice, could get involved, could talk about the national security implications of, say, a Boko Haram attacking 
raising a larger question internationally about America's presence there, trying to turn it into uh, some sort of conflict between the United States uh, and the world of Islam. Of course. So there is something called the Voluntary Principles on Security and Human Rights, which a lot of companies have signed on to. Some of the biggest companies, actually natural resource companies on the planet, are are, uh, part of this initiative. And there are also governments involved as well. And this is, while a voluntary uh, soft law uh, institution, these companies have come together to say, look, we want to have good practices so that when we hire those security forces, um, that we do our best to make sure that those forces do not engage in human rights abuses. And why does that happen? Well, there's a lot of reasons. It's the right thing to do. Um, But there's also reputational risks that companies engage in uh, when they, you know, you do not want to be the company that's in the news because someone who works for you, even if it's a contractor, you know, perhaps shot some villagers in the area where uh, your pipeline is operating, for example. or other things like that. And so, you know, it really does matter what's happening politically in the country. It matters what's happening from uh, an economic standpoint, um, because if your project is very shiny, new, and fancy, that makes it a target for people who want to, uh, you know, maybe, you know, rob it, rob your employees. Um, You know, it also makes you potentially a terrorist target uh, in a situation where, you know, Boko Haram or some other terrorist organization uh, or arguably terrorist organization is operating in your area. You need to know that and you need to be up to date on what are the security risks in your area. It is absolutely just to say it's a best practice is an understatement that anytime you're going to engage in a project, you know, outside of your uh, regular operating area, you need to do your due diligence. What does that include? Human rights impact assessments, a security assessment. And the security assessment and that human rights impact assessment and maybe a political risk assessment, that's going to involve looking at many layers of, of the country in which you're operating. And, and let's just add, too, yeah. um, for people who maybe some of our listeners haven't spent a whole lot of time outside of the country, but mm-hmm. it is sort of a, a truth that in many places, American companies are basically seen the same as our country. In other words, you see a big corporate name that is an American company. There are some places in the world where that's just deemed an extension of the government, whether that's true or false, that's how it's perceived. Yes. I mean, there were certainly times in the past, um, if you kind of look back to the Cold War, when, you know, a McDonald's opens up and there are people protesting in celebration and there are people protesting in opposition (laughs) because, you know, the capitalists have arrived. But it is true that the big companies are flags of the United States in some way, or at least are perceived as that. And that means that, guess what? You can be a target to those who may not like us. But you can also be a friend to those who do, or, and you can help reputationally not just yourselves, but also the United States and vice versa. So uh, American companies' uh, operations in foreign countries can complicate diplomatic relationships between the United States and that foreign country. Can you talk about how, what a lawyer's advice might be how you might flag for clients what particular land landmines I might step on in their operations? Well, one thing that I, I deal with a lot in my day-to-day practice is I do a lot of international arbitration. Some of that's international commercial arbitration and some of that's international investment arbitration. And you're probably thinking, what does that have to do with national security, which is the question of the day? Um, but a lot of the disputes that I do when I am counsel to parties involved in this is that it's a dispute between a very large company and a foreign country. So, for instance, there's a lot of talk in the news right now about 
NAFTA and renegotiating NAFTA and what become NAFTA and other kinds of trade deals. Well, these trade deals provide uh, for dispute resolution, and I am counsel in these kinds of cases where they end up before an arbitral panel. You can imagine that if there is a really big dispute between a company and the United States, uh, for instance, you know, Canadian lumber activities in the United States, and they may go to one of these tribunals, the amount of money that may be claimed in these kinds of disputes, you would be astonished. Um, We're talking... It can be in the billions of dollars. It can also be in the millions of dollars. It's a huge wide range. But for countries uh, outside the United States, these amounts ha- have a very big impact uh, on their economies. If you think of the uh, a developing country's economy and you think what would happen if a $9 billion judgment came out against them, this has, I mean, this is an up and down impact from the very top levels of the government on down. So. This relates from a diplomatic standpoint. There, These disputes are usually brought under treaties. And there are investment treaties, there are trade agreements, um, which will allow for trade disputes to be resolved through these certain mechanisms. And all of this is, involves politics and involves um, economic development issues for the United States and its, and its friends. Xander, your work has been amazing. And we're so glad you took time to come by and talk it over with us. All right. So we pose a hypothetical question to all of our guests. Okay. And you're going to be a victim as well. Um, so I want you to imagine, mm-hmm. I've imagined that I am a young lawyer in Silicon Valley, and I'm trying to make, it, make a name for myself because I want to be a lawyer to startups. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say I have a new client who wants to build a subterranean train that can hurl people uh, underground from Los Angeles to San Francisco in less than an hour. But key to making this possible is a very precious mineral that's only available in a country far away in which a ruthless warlord is running around wreaking havoc because the central government is so weak or non-existent. What should I be thinking about and discussing with my client, a client who won't take no for an answer, and this client could make me wealthy? Oh boy, uh, too bad we don't have an hour. <laughs> but but a couple of things that, that come to mind immediately are, look, you know, if you're going to be dealing with a particular mineral, as you say, you know, this, this rare mineral, are there prohibitions on that? Are there sanctions uh, involved in the country that has that mineral? Um, is it subject to any of the conflict minerals provisions that, for instance, the EU has developed? And the United States conflict minerals rule is, I believe, is currently under advisement. Um, but there are a lot of regulations that involve, on a state level and a national level, conflict minerals. So that's one whole bucket of stuff, right? Can you even use this mineral to start with and can you get it here? Also, if you're going to be engaged in activity in that foreign country, again, human rights impact assessment (laughs) and security assessment and things like this. But also, there's the law, there's the spirit of the law, and there is the very powerful court of public opinion. You know, there is something to be said for sitting back and thinking, okay, this might make you a lot of money. And I mean that I'm not just talking about the lawyer, I'm talking about the company, but, you know, you're supposed to advise your client for what's in their best interest. And if you're going to have to be best buds with someone who is known as a warlord, (laughs) this does not bode well for raising money for your startup, for trying to make a name for your new company and things like that. And, you know, from a very practical standpoint down the line, 
if you are dealing with anything that's cross-border, you need to draft your conflict resolution clauses really carefully for that reason. And you may be subject to uh, some of these international treaties, whether it's an investment treaty or some other uh, agreements that are out there about how to operate. Um, and of course, you know, depending on what you end up in, you know, extradition treaties. <laughs> but let's hope the not. The very last resort. Yes, but no, I mean, but something that, you know, your, your hypo might seem, you know, innocent, but there are just uh, so many issues that get involved when you are cross-border and then dealing with, you know, even if a, a mineral for your computer or for your fancy project. So, as we've said in many podcasts, all you startup people, pack your lawyers before <laughs> you head across the border. Uh, and do you have any general advice for a young lawyer looking to get into private national security law writ large? Yes. Uh, I have two concrete things I want to say. First, I get asked a lot by law students or young lawyers who want to get involved in international criminal law, how did you do it? Uh, And so a story I love to tell is of someone I knew who had been a corporate lawyer at a a big law law firm here in the United States. And how did she end up working for an international criminal tribunal when what she did was a lot of corporate, (laughs) you know, documents and work? How do those two things relate? Well, she searched for every pro bono project she could find that related to international criminal law and got really involved in the ABA's uh, Committee on International Criminal Law and some other opportunities that were out there. Did you just give a shout out to the ABA? I may have done that shout on the ABA podcast. The ABA. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I heard that. But, and you know, story with a happy ending. So you know, watch those websites. These different tribunals actually do, because it's part of a public procurement and public hiring and things like that, they advertise when they have job openings. You watch for them, you see them, and then if you're, you know, like this this person I knew, when she applied, she could say, okay, yes, I know you see corporate. However, here are these specific things that I have worked on, and in an interview could absolutely demonstrate her knowledge. So she was able to transfer from you know, big city, big law in the United States to one of these tribunals. Um, so it can be done. Uh, and my other piece of advice is be nice. Um, <laughs> you can That's be, always good advice. You can it? be stern but nice. Lawyers nice. I know, right? It goes against her every instinct. This is this is my my New Hampshire lawyer coming out, right? When I got sworn into the bar in New Hampshire, fifty four of us got sworn in that day. I got sworn into New York. I think we had five thousand. And people think you can hide in a crowd, but you'd be amazed in fields, and especially fields that relate to national security or international law. You will see the same people over and over again, and they will remember when you were not nice. All right, listeners, it's been four months, believe it or not, since we interviewed Xander Mize, and we have good fortune to have her back. And congratulations. I know that since last we spoke, you have a new title, and that is Partner. Thank you. Uh, Xander, why don't you give us the landscape and what has happened before our august Supreme Court since last we spoke? Sure. Uh, Thank you for having me back, first of all. Uh, But yes, in the meantime, the Supreme Court has heard the case of Jessner versus Arab Bank. And this case raises a bunch of interesting questions. Uh, It's been called a terrorist financing case. It's a human rights case. It's about this thing called the alien tort statute, which a lot of people think, that sounds interesting. What does that even mean? Is it still alive? But what is this case about? This case is about some plaintiffs have sued Arab Bank, which is a bank that was founded in Jerusalem decades and decades ago, and are saying that Arab Bank basically facilitated payments to 
terrorist organizations and terrorists who conducted uh, terrorist attacks in Israel um, back in the 2000s. And as part of their allegations, they noted that a branch of the bank in New York was involved in some way. They weren't necessarily very specific. There hasn't been fact development on the case. Why did this go to the Supreme Court? Because the case is asking whether corporations are proper defendants under this alien tort statute. A couple years ago, the Supreme Court had a case called Kiobel versus Royal Dutch Petroleum. And in that case, there were some individuals from Nigeria who had sued Royal Dutch Petroleum for assorted human rights abuses that took place in Nigeria. The court, the Supreme Court, had this case because they wondered, well, the question initially was, are corporations proper defendants? But the Supreme Court instead decided to ask the question whether a case that involved foreign plaintiffs, foreign defendant, and actions that took place overseas had any business in a U.S. court. And those sorts of cases they end up calling foreign cubed cases because all three points are not in the United States. In that case, the Supreme Court did not directly answer the question as to whether a corporation was a proper defendant. It said, we don't need to answer that, basically because this is foreign cubed, and we decided that because it does not touch and concern the United States with sufficient force to overcome the presumption against extraterritoriality, leave it to lawyers to give unpronounceable words, but yes, we are not going to hear the case. Well, that still left a circuit split as to whether corporations were proper defendants. And the Second Circuit is where Kiobel came from. So this case of Jessner versus Arab Bank came through the Second Circuit. Second Circuit said, look, our previous decision in Kiobel with regard to corporations hasn't been disturbed by the Supreme Court. Okay, there's a footnote somewhere where they mention corporations something something. But the holding in Kiobel doesn't answer our question. So we're obliged to say Arab Bank is not a proper defendant went to the Supreme Court. So in October, the Supreme Court heard argument. Now, in the community of folks that deal with the alien tort statute, they were really hoping that the Supreme Court, despite the fact that the question is about corporations, is actually going to provide some guidance about this touch and concern. What did it mean in Kiobel when the Supreme Court said you have to touch and concern the United States? Is that language that you know of used in any prior Supreme Court opinion? I must admit, I don't, but if you, one looks at the numerous cases that we've had since and decisions of courts across the country following Kiobel, there doesn't seem to be a lot of previous guidance on what touch and concern actually means. And courts have been testing it out and trying to <laughs> douse, uh, you know, as to its meaning um, and read the tea leaves from the Supreme Court, but I think that everyone involved would really appreciate some guidance. Corporations would like to know, as far as for their planning activities, of course they want to know what their potential for liability is. The human rights community would like to know, because the alien tort statute has been something that uh, people have frankly come from all over the world to make use of in the United States, uh, because in places where, they, where people feel they cannot get redressed in the local courts, this has been what was thought to be an option for people to try and use. Uh, the statute to get some justice. Even if a case never went all the way to merits, get a lot of publicity, reputational harm uh, can be a very powerful weapon uh, in human rights. So reputational risks are something that companies are, are quite concerned with. And the United States is also interested in this case because, as you can imagine, these sorts of suits uh, that involve you know 
human rights allegations. No one likes to be accused of things like slavery um, or... No, I would think not. <laughs> kind <laughs> of ugly. Kind of ugly. <laughs> Extrajudicial killing, not a fan. Uh, no. Torture, don't want to be in that same sentence. So yes. <laughs> when you add all these things together, it actually creates... It can create international frictions. Um, you know, the, when you have something like, for instance, actually in this case of Jessner versus Arab Bank, if you look at the Amici on the side of the bank, there are numerous sovereigns in the Middle East who submitted amicus briefs on the side of the bank. You know, these kinds of cases can have an impact on international relations. I bet. There's also, of course, the concern about sovereignty, right? No country likes it when another country's courts try and tell it what to do. And you know, there are limited circumstances in which the international community will sometimes allow one country to consider cases that involve actions in another country. You know, and even though immunity is bold and strong throughout the world, there are exceptions to it for violating use cogens. Uh, you know, for instance, use cogens being sort of fundamental norms of international law that everyone agrees, and the international community really agrees on things. But there are a few things the international community agrees no one should do. Torture, Torture slavery. Extraterritorial slavery, <laughs> killing, slavery. Exactly. Piracy. Everyone's against piracy. Universally. Uh, does, you know, there's not, there's not people lining Although the up. the latter has a certain romantic implication. <laughs> well, you know, when I, get, when I get to talk about cases involving pirates, everyone seems to pay attention. So... <laughs> So the stuff um, of lore. Right. But but generally speaking, you know, there is this this thought and this concern. You know, we don't like other courts telling what certainly what the United States should be doing. So in reverse, other countries are not perhaps so fond of US courts. Sure. You know, weighing in on things that have happened in their territory. So this case is is definitely one that's being watched from numerous angles. Also, a little bit different than your traditional human rights case. Because the allegation here involves terrorism financing, you know, there is a lot of attention from um, certain sectors of the counterterrorism community about this as well, because it's, frankly, you know, hard to engage in certain terrorist acts without the funds to purchase the goods to pay the assorted people involved, things like that. And one of the most effective tools um, in recent years for rooting out terrorist activity before attacks take place can be to follow the money. Uh, we're gonna we're going to see. This is a certainly a case that I'm watching, and I know a lot of people in human rights, national security, international business, you name it. Uh, the international community is taking a look at this one. Fascinating. Well, let's let's shift gears here for just a minute. You also mentioned concerns about conflict minerals. Minerals obviously are in everything down to the processing level. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was an SEC rule about conflict minerals. What has changed? Well, in 2010, in the Dodd-Frank legislation, there was a provision calling upon companies to do a filing. If they do filings with the SEC, they had to attach an extra form that talked about whether, uh, as part of their production, they used four particular minerals, conflict minerals, uh, and whether those minerals had been sourced from Congo uh, in a particular region in Africa. And the idea was that you were supposed to say that you've done due diligence such that you don't believe that your use of these minerals um, involved taking them from that conflict region. Um, this was a controversial provision. Um, there was a court case about it. People argued the statute was vague. What, is, what does this reporting really mean? You can imagine the, right. the things around it. Well, the, earlier this year, uh, with the incoming administration, 
um, one of the first things that they said was that they were going to look at this rule. And um, several months later, the um, SEC said that they were not going to enforce this rule. That may make um, some companies uh, breathe a sigh of relief, but it's not just the United States that's been looking into this issue. Uh, different countries in Europe have looked into the issue, the OECD has looked into it, and uh, the European community has put in place its own conflict minerals rule. So the, in Europe, the, their conflict minerals provision isn't going to take full effect uh, until I believe 2021. But um, again, it is something to watch. And just because that provision may only directly apply to importers into the EU, that doesn't mean that somewhere along the line, one of those importers is not using a U.S. corporation or a corporation from some other country right. as part of their processes. And so indirectly, it will have an effect beyond the EU. Right, and so that's a private national security law concern that has to be tackled by some compliance shop somewhere. But let's just bring it back to the baseline here, which is in case this thread is lost, it is true that American companies operating overseas are often perceived as the United States itself. Uh, and so these are not uh, random concerns detached from national security, but it is also true if you look at other countries, many of their companies uh, have a connection to the state, so these decisions could have an impact on uh, treaties, foreign relations, the reputation of the United States as a moral leader. So this is fantastic. This is a very uh, nuanced uh, area of national security law, but it's also a fascinating one. So it's been a pleasure to have you back here. Do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners tonight? Oh, goodness. Um, honestly, change your passwords. It's uh, a happy new year. It's a good time to do it. Personal security is a good thing to have in mind. <laughs> All right, Xander, it's been a pleasure. I hope that you'll come back and talk to us about another issue. I would love to. Thank you again for having me. So thank you for listening to the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff where you have no access to the device you're using to listen to us right now, and you're certain you need less sun than other people to maintain a healthy amount of vitamin D, and of course if you get claustrophobic in a secure area or you really do need a lot of vitamin D, so you'd rather practice private national security law. But you still want to practice the kind of law that gives you a courtside seat to history. A courtside seat to watch a game you can't talk about with your in-laws. Then join us again next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And we hope to see you at our next conference. Listening to a podcast, folks, is informative, but social networking isn't really networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts or lunches or conferences. Find out more at AmericanBar.org. Uh, forward slash nat security or follow us on twitter at aba netsec and don't forget that every serious national security lawyer has one great book on their desk the 2017 u.s intelligence community law source book available for purchase on our website from all of us here thank you for listening and we'll see you next time thank you for listening to national security law today look for links to the black letter laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website you can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack.